Hello, I'm Chris Young. I'm the editor of The Garden and welcome to our new audio series from the RHS, The Garden Podcast. This is a series where we go behind the scenes of the RHS magazine to bring you the stories behind the stories. We're delving into subjects which gardeners, you, me, everybody are getting excited about right now in our beautiful autumn gardens. In today's episode, how do you fancy some dead man's fingers for a bit of interest in your Halloween garden? We reveal how to plant for autumn interest that appeals to both wildlife, birds and the aesthetic eye. Plus we explore the surprising legacy of the First World War and the shape of the modern British garden. As the centenary of Armistice Day approaches, I speak to a leading garden historian about the impact of global conflict on horticultural practice. I'm Chris Young, the editor of The Garden magazine, the RHS members magazine, and it is a very beautiful, sunny, autumnal, mid-October day, and the office is surprisingly quiet today. I'm not quite sure where everybody is, but the people who are here are really beavering away, mainly on finishing the November issue of The Garden magazine, putting plenty of content on our website and doing plenty of other things on books and special publications. The office is awash with goodies. People have been out and about on photo shoots or bringing crops from their allotment. Our podcast coordinator, Gareth Richards, he puts all of us to shame with what he grows on the allotment. Other people have been around to different gardens and to some of the RHS gardens on photo shoots. So there's always something coming in that you're not quite sure why it's here or where it's come from. But that's the joy of busy production media office. In the November issue, we always try and bring as much colour and interest to the issue as we possibly can. We've got stuff about winter bedding uh, and bringing colour to your doorstep. Got a gorgeous Northumberland garden, which is a really nice, real, homely garden, which has got so much interest and so much detail in it. It's absolutely atmospheric. And we've also got a couple of other real contrasting gardens. One is a tiny, small, contemporary courtyard space designed by Tony Woods. And the other is this massive garden in America called Camp Rosemary, which is a fabulous name. Uh, we've also got the advice section, all of the comment section, and hopefully a mix that everybody would enjoy. Gareth Richards. Hello. Hello. <laughs> you're, you're not only an expert in gardening and allotments generally, but you also work on the podcast and our website. I, I do indeed, yes. And You've brought in some stuff to show off. What is this beautiful crop before us? Well, I've brought in the very last remains of my tomato crop because I cleared the greenhouse the other week. And so we've got a few different colours of tomatoes here. These black ones are really lovely, aren't they? We've had these before. What are they? They are called black cherry they're my absolute new favourite, I think. I They're my discovery of the year. Well, if you don't mind if I eat. And what's the other one? The really stripey one. That is green zebra. That, again, is a real surprise because I, I really like the flavour on those. I was, they don't look like they're ripe, no, but they actually... They look green and a bit sort of underripe. But... Yeah, and they turn this slight sort of yellow-green as they ripen and they are absolutely delicious. Mm, they're lovely. And the other gorgeous things on the table are these little pumpkins. Yes, now I had a really good pumpkin crop as well because I've got couple of allotments and one of them I just turned over half of it to pumpkins. <laughs> like you do. <laughs> you put all of us to shame. <laughs> so uh, I thought I'd try a few different ones. But this ones. is a real ditty one. I mean, this one is sitting in the palm of my hand. Yes, it's a cute little one called Jack B. Little and they are really, really yummy. They're quite sort of chestnutty and you can just cut them into slices, roast them with a bit of sage, salt and pepper. Delicious. What's the one bit of advice you'd give on pumpkin growing? Is it about water? Is it about the soil they grow in? I think the, the key is give them plenty of room. Get a nice big plant and pop it out after the risk of frost has passed. Lovely, Gareth. I'll leave you back to work.
One of the articles that's really caught my eye this month is an article by our very own esteemed deputy editor, Phil Clayton, who's written all about the jewels of autumn fruits and the benefits they can bring to a garden at this time of year. I'm going to go and grab him for a quick catch-up to talk to him more about them. Right, Phil, this article, the thing that grabs me the most, and I know does with you, is the plate, the photography of it. When did you do it and where did you do it? We did it at Wisley, Archer's Garden Wisley, last autumn, October. That's more or less the ideal time for autumn fruit. Any later and the birds have probably feasted on a load any earlier and it's not really ready yet. So yeah, we did it there. Actually, so we did it there. We collected the material from Wisley and then we actually did the actual photography in a studio elsewhere. So is Wisley particularly well known for ornamental fruit or do you reckon any good garden with a range of plants can give this sort of variety or is it, are some of the things on this really special? There are some special things on it and Wisley has a remarkable plant collection. So there is going to be a huge range of fruit there just because there's such a huge range of plants there but yeah a lot of gardens would have I think a surprising number of different ornamental fruits at this time of year you just got to keep your eye out for some of them so tell us what are some of the real special things in this photograph there's quite a wide range of things I think we got 19 things on didn't we eventually the one that stands out I think is the Decasnia fargesii just because it's so peculiar <laughs> these blue sort of finger like fruits up in the top left hand corner it's got a great name a common name yeah, isn't it yeah dead man's fingers I'll tell you more about that later um, <laughs> also peculiar not as unusual perhaps is that at the bottom left there's a magnolia seed pod magnolias have very curious sort of seed pods they almost like wizened toenails or something long contorted scaly and bendy scaly. aren't they yeah, yeah they're scaly and they split open and then the seeds which are usually orange drop out of them but sometimes they're suspended for a while by a little filament so they're peculiar things and they're kind of in the tree above your head usually and are there many plants in here that are regular garden plants that you would say yeah, there's one or two quite common things. So there's the, the hips of a rose on there. There's lacesteria, which is one of the easiest mm. plants to grow that there is. has a really long season. And these kind of bunches, almost like grapes or much smaller, uh, which hang off the branches for most of the autumn. The colours, I think, stand out on this plate. You've got blue from the decays, as I've already mentioned. Purple, calicarpa. There's quite a lot of red fruits, aren't there? Euonymus is always remarkable. You've got this kind of lipstick pink seed coat, which is really the fruit, and then the orange, contrasting orange seeds inside. I put on a peony because the seeds themselves mm. are revealed when the fruit splits open and they are jet black, really shiny. And I think that's what's striking, isn't it? When people look at the photograph, they'll see some plants that they do know, like the peony, you say, and the magnolia. But actually, when you see it in seed yeah. and fruit, it's quite a different plant. Yeah, absolutely it is. It really is. And I think people forget about the virtues of some plants in autumn. I don't think that gardeners particularly plant up their gardens for autumn. I think most other seasons they do. Something that we talked about when you were editing and writing the piece, this balance between summer and autumn and winter gardens, and I think you make the point really beautifully in the article, but do you think there is enough of a period between end of summer and a winter garden for people to consider planting for autumn? It seems like summers are getting longer and autumns are sort of being more and more compressed into a shorter amount of time. But in actual fact, some of these berries last a surprising length of time, especially if the birds leave them alone. And with winter's 
being milder generally. Certainly the first parts of winter's seeming to be milder. I think so. I do feel that we should pay more attention to the virtues of autumn fruiting things. Why do plants make these ornamental fruit? What is it as part of the reproduction process uh, that makes them grow this sort of fruit like this? Basically, the fruit are seed-bearing structures. And by fruit, we mean fleshy structures. Fruit can also include things like rice, wheat grains, the pod of a bean. And the fruits are formed from the ovary of the flower after flowering is finished. And the fruits are the means by which plants spread their seeds. But the truth is that fruits can be dry or they can be fleshy. If they're dry, something like a poppy seed head, they tend to split open. They call that dehiscence when a seed head splits open. Then it sheds its seed. With a poppy, it sheds its seed usually through the wind blowing it. It's called a sensor mechanism. And the seeds spill out a bit like grains of pepper out of a pepper pot. But when the wall of the fruit, the pericarp is what it's known as, the pericarp wall is fleshy, you have the fruits. So berries, other stone fruits... Plants have evolved to have fruits, usually with sweet-flavoured flesh, to appeal to animals, particularly birds, actually. Mm. And the animals then will spread the seeds around through eating the fruits. Some fruits, like the burrs, which have got hooks or thorns on, which attach the animals, and that's how they spread their, their seeds. But with these ornamental fruits, no, it's about the fruit being eaten by an animal or particularly a bird. How do we ensure a really good display? There's various things I think you need to consider, really. Obviously, when you're planting the plant, put it somewhere that it can easily be seen. It's no point in planting a sorbus at the bottom of the garden if you've got to walk down to the bottom of the garden to see it. You want to be able to see it from the house. Some plants do need more than one individual to ensure good pollination and to ensure good fruit set. So that's the second thing to consider. Not all plants and trees do need that. So there are plenty of ornamental plants where you can just plant one individual and you'll get good fruits. It's also important to state as well that some plants to get a good crop need to be fairly mature. So you can't expect mm. a very tiddly young plant to be covered in fruits, but maybe a five or six year old plant will be. As far as cultural needs are concerned, a light trimming of a plant just before fruits are reached their best exposes them so that they ripen better and develop better colours. Tip back some of the shoots to about two or three buds, I think, and that would just reveal these fruits and get them to ripen better. So Dead Man's Fingers, where, Dead Man's where, when fingers. did you first hear about them and have you ever grown them? Yeah, so I used to, in my old garden, I used to have a plant of Decasnea fargesii. It's an easy plant to grow. It's easy, it's quite elegant. It's got long, handsome leaves, sort of feather-like leaves, which go quite a yellowy colour in the autumn. So it's quite an attractive thing, uh, quite upright, sort of vaguely architectural, really. And then you'll get in the spring, you'll get these spidery jade green flowers. And then later on in the summer, you suddenly notice these... I'm going to say sausage-like fruits appearing towards the tips usually of the growing shoots. And they then gradually turn this astonishing blue colour. There isn't, there aren't many other fruits that are this colour. And I've always thought this term dead man's mm. fingers is a little bit overdoing it. I mean, really. But that's until I tried picking them. <laughs> and I have to say that picking the fruit for this particular plate... It was the most unpleasant experience. The, the, skin, <laughs> the skin is just like flesh. It feels exactly like flesh. And when oh. you press into it, it yields a oh. little bit and they're cold. And it is really unpleasant. So I can now understand why it's called Dead Man's Fingers. It's worth pointing out there's a yellow-fruited form as well. And they're slightly more contorted. than They're less finger-like and more sort of boat-shaped almost. 
Lovely. Well, thank you very much, Phil. It's fascinating. Everyone will read the article in the November issue, and I'm sure this time next year we'll be seeing plenty more autumn fruit in people's gardens. The magazine is just one of many benefits of joining the RHS. If you haven't joined already, why not do it now? Or sign up a garden-loving friend. Membership makes a great Christmas gift. So if you want to know this or any more details, visit our website at rhs.org.uk. Many people ask us why we commission certain articles in certain ways, and I think it's always a really useful thing to explain. There's a couple of articles this edition. One of the pieces by Dr Alistair Griffiths, our Director of Science and Collections, and it's about growing veg indoors. And this is something we've really noticed is coming to the market, some different home-growing kits. And as technology develops and scientists understand about light and the way that it impacts on the plant's growth, there are some now some really cool little kits coming into people's homes where they can grow veg through the year and Alistair talks about that he's just got a couple of pages about his experience on what he's tried at home and what crops he's working well with it's a really useful piece and really interesting about latest technology which is coming to the market the bit that's really struck me is the way that hydroponics, so the use of a soilless growing media, so water, to grow plants, is really advancing much of this. So he's been trialling, through his own volition really, some different kits that he's got from different suppliers, and he's got a whole range of things that he's growing. His mealtimes must be fabulous in his house, because he's got things like Genovese basil, Thai basil, in a different section he's using different salads, rocket, spinach, mixed lettuce leaf, pea shoots, a whole range of things. And he really, being a scientist, wants to know how these things work but also he just wants to see actually where is the future going might we all be having these sort of kits in the future or might we all be living in a sci-fi world or something like the martian film where actually we can be growing our own veg and possibly fruit indoors and in a closed environment one of our regular columnists is the wonderful brilliant writer leoline dirtz uh, and she always makes things so passionate and her subjects are always uh, so well thought through and this month she's making a bit of a link between a times of national uncertainty and the benefit and the beauty of allotments and uh, she's raising the spectre of the dreaded b word which i can't even believe we're talking about but brexit and actually how we might want to use our outside space especially allotments in a time next year where things might be a bit more unsettled uh, it's something that lee has sort of touched on before she's talked about grief of her grandmother dying and a way the garden has responded or she's responded to a garden or planting trees and she's really making this connection between humanity through people through the everyday that we get that connection with nature with growing and she does that so eloquently and whether she's right or not whether brexit will actually make the demand for allotments increase because there's always such huge demand on allotments already or not i don't know but it's a real thoughtful piece and it's something that reminds me of the value of being outside of gardening of being being in touch with nature, whether there's a national crisis or not. Talking of times of national uncertainty, I caught up with Amber Edwards, one of our authors, who is a great garden historian, on the phone to talk to her about her article, which really focuses on the legacy of the First World War and what that means for gardens and horticulture. I think the general perception is that horticulture changed after World War I because the gardeners all marched off to war and very few of them came back. But in fact, what I found out, this isn't at all what happened. Yes, gardeners did go off to war, and yes, inevitably, 
many of them were killed. But in fact, nine out of ten ordinary soldiers survived the trenches, and it was perhaps the officer class that was decimated. Yes, the country house was in trouble, but it had been in trouble long before the First World War. And it was actually the Second World War that saw it off. The rot had begun in the 1880s when a flood of cheap corn from North America engineered a fall in, in land values so that wealth that had previously been invested in the land really was changing, that wealth was now uh, held by a new class of financiers and businessmen and tradesmen. And so the country house that had been such a prestigious thing really became something of a millstone and something that people needed to get rid of. But also one of the things that was happening was that throughout the 19th century, the wealthy had been relatively little troubled by taxation. And this began to change to the extent that by 1919, death duties had reached 40%. And perhaps one of the biggest indicators of this was the 1909 People's Budget by David Lloyd George, which proposed super tax on the wealthy in order to fund welfare reform, along with a raft of land taxes. This was enormously contentious. It was blocked by the House of Lords, but eventually passed in 1910. But it did lead to general elections and eventually to House of Lords reform. So first we can say that, you know, David Lloyd George was pretty instrumental in changing the way we garden, first through the People's Budget in 1909 and then through his sort of what became known as the Homes for Heroes policy that was instituted in the aftermath of the war. What became clear during the war was that the social contract was changing and that it was impossible for men who had suffered so much during the war to come back to the conditions that existed. It was already clear in 1914 there was a, was a housing crisis. But as Walter Long, president of the local government board, summed it up, he said, to let them come home from the horrible waterlogged trenches to something little better than a pigsty here would indeed be criminal and a negation of all that we have said during the war that we can never repay those men for what they have done for us. So Lloyd George, who has an election to fight the immediate aftermath of the war, stands up in Wolverhampton in November 1918 and makes a speech in which he declares that his job is to make Britain a fit country for heroes to live in. And that means finding work for all those men who have been demobbed and it is also finding housing. And there follows the 1919 Housing Act, which was called the Addison Act after the Minister of Health, Christopher Addison, who instituted it. And what this did was to give substantial grants to local authorities to build new houses. And the inspiration behind this building project was the Garden City movement of the late 19th century, whereby houses were built at very low densities to very high standards, indeed the highest standards that we've ever had before or since. So the move was to make houses that had three bedrooms, they had indoor lavatories, they had running water, they had electricity, but above all they had a garden front and back. And so a whole new class of people came from the cities and gardened for the first time. And I think this changed gardening much more profoundly than anything that happened to the country house. What did you learn from writing about the article? What struck me was that how many things we take for granted in gardens, or did until fairly recently, make their appearance at this time. 
So I think all of us can remember our parents' gardens or our grandparents' gardens where you have the square of lawn and the apple tree at the back perhaps and a rockery and a path going down the side lots of crazy paving these are all things that make their appearance at this time and also a sense of how we garden in the new estates the lcc and then the councils in Manchester and Bristol and all the other places where the estates were built, you know, they put a, a high priority on, on how the gardens should appear and they issue little handbooks telling people what to do and how to look after these splendid new gardens of theirs and that they shouldn't make them too fussy and they should do this and they should do that. And they had competitions to foster this kind of spirit of competitive gardening in which bottles of champagne were sort of issued to the best kept garden and how you keep the garden, this sort of sense that it should be neat and clean and splendid, is very much part of the ethos of the time, whereas the back garden is perhaps more of an area for self-expression in the way that we would understand it now. And also some of the features that we've become very familiar with. For example, there are lovely stories that have been recorded of people who were quite young children at the time moving to the new estates and being astonished and delighted to see in their neighbours' gardens little Chinese bridges and especially gnomes. <laughs> That's where they, gnomes, were they already in existence before The gnomes before had been a kind of, they'd been quite an aristocratic <laughs> uh, feature in the great uh, rockeries of aristocratic houses now had become a popular feature. <laughs> Anyone could have one. <laughs> In all your research, Amber, for the article, were there any personal stories or anecdotes that, that really spoke to you? Yes, I mean, there were, there were lovely anecdotal stories of, of people moving to the estates, but perhaps the thing that struck me most was the effect of the immediate aftermath of the war. I think it's very difficult for us to understand what that world looked like. And something that struck me were some of the statistics that more than 41,000 men had their limbs amputated during the war, that a further 272,000 suffered injuries in their legs or arms that didn't require amputation but were lifelong injuries. Over 60,000 were wounded in the head or eyes. Another 90,000 sustained other serious damage, and that's obviously not to mention the mental scars. And I think it's easy to forget that degree of, of suffering and obviously what an effect that would have had on people trying to work and specifically in the garden that on the one level gardening becomes something people can't do anymore because they're so injured and on the other hand it becomes a release and this is where we see the beginnings of horticultural therapy and something that struck me very much at the time were some of the ads and the, the leaders that appeared in the magazines so that the Gardener's Chronicle in, in January 1919 offers to take uh, free ads for people looking for jobs and employers looking for gardeners. There was one that I just noticed. It was Lady Margaret Ryder's wishes to highly recommend F. Deany as gardener, second, inside, demobilised, 11 years' experience in vines, peaches, melons, cucumbers and plants under glass. Also house and table decorations previous to enlisting August 1914, four and a half years in His Majesty's forces as sergeant, age 30, married, good references. Wow. And it kind of sums up a whole vanished world, doesn't it? Yeah, and the, the skills and um, 
benefits we you know we would lose at our peril and that actually but but society wanted to support these people you know there was a clear sort of cultural belief in supporting these people not only through the homes even though there was not as many homes that were built as as they had hoped for but there was some sort of civic duty some support for these uh, returning servicemen yeah i believe there was that's the language in in which these things are framed one of the interesting things we find is that during the war the rhs was trying very hard to obtain exemptions for fuel so that important plant collections could be kept going. I mean, they failed to do so, but at least it was a worthy attempt. And to keep the nursery industry going because people were being driven out of business. You see interesting things in the aftermath trying to recover some of these old trades, like there's a purveyor of glasshouses, Messenger and Co, who are able to resume normal business as they are no longer having to make armaments. <laughs> you don't understand how much war has spread into every aspect of life and how vast that effort has to be to recover. Amber Edwards, whose article you can read in the November issue of The Garden magazine. That's all for me. I'm just off to check on the flat plan for the December issue where we're looking at garden, at Kilvercourt, winter brassicas and the beauty that is the Christmas flowering hippie astrums. Until the next time, I'm Chris Young. Thanks for listening to The Garden Podcast. Podcast.